Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. As always, my name is James, and I'm here with a few of the biggest stories the Empire Center has been following over the past few weeks. Since we last talked, Governor Hochul unveiled her 2024 state budget proposal, and it looks like that's going to stay on the same course as last year. That is, raising state spending to unsustainable levels and potentially digging deeper holes for the future. The proposal increases the state operating funds budget from $121 billion in fiscal year 2023 to more than $128 billion, driven mostly by increases to school aid and Medicaid, already two of the state's largest budget categories. Despite these historic increases, the budget will remain balanced, for next year at least, thanks to unprecedented surpluses generated by a combination of federal pandemic relief aid and strong tax receipts across the last three years. After that, though, who knows? Another bitter cold rolled through New York this past week, prompting a renewed look at what keeps the heat on in households across the state. A lot of it already comes from natural gas, but there's a big supply problem there. The CLCPA mandates that the state must switch to renewable energy sources like solar and wind, but currently these sources aren't nearly enough to power the whole state. This means that for this foreseeable future, fossil fuels will be the only proven source of dispatchable backup energy to keep the heat on in New York. Finally, enrollment in New York public schools has sunk to its lowest level since the mid-1950s, and these numbers were primarily driven by a massive decline in school enrollment in the city. Every county saw fewer public school students enrolled than it did just 10 years ago in the 2013 to 2014 school year. The biggest decline was in the Bronx, where enrollment fell by 23%, and that almost entirely happened since the pandemic. Now, these numbers come out despite the aforementioned proposed hike to state aid for local school districts. For more research and analysis on what's going on in New York, of course, I encourage you to go to empirecenter.org, where our experts are following everything going on and writing to keep you more informed. But until then, please enjoy the rest of this episode. We've got a few great discussions and interviews. Until next time, my name is James. This is Messages of Necessity. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another interview on Messages of Necessity. Today, I am thrilled to have Ashara Baker with us. Ashara is from Rochester, and we first met a few months ago when we were starting to really find out what was going on with parents in Rochester and what they were experiencing when it came to the education system. Um, Ashara is the New York State Director for the National Parents Union, and she has many other projects that she's involved in, some of which we'll probably be hearing about today. But welcome, Ashara, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, Ashara, you are a parent. Let's start there. <laughs> um, yeah, first and foremost. First and first, first and foremost. So what got you involved in all of these issues around education in New York? What was it that you were seeing and experiencing as a parent that made you want to take action? So I, when I tell this story, it kind of starts backwards. It was before I be, became a parent, essentially. I, I learned about some of the disparities within uh, public school systems just based off of a job that I got through the local Boys and Girls Club of Rochester. I worked with young men who were re-entering re into the community, and I did a literacy program in addition to job training skills. Mm -hmm. I then learned that I was enrolling 11th graders into magnet school programs, yet they couldn't 
finish a, a sea biscuit run book, or you know, we were struggling with burn seeds and bear series. Uh, that was the the spark that really lit off in my mind where I wanted to be a part of an impact, and I wanted to figure out where where was the disconnect for families and children. Um, at some point, I started to work with the Charter Schools Association. I was a brand new parent, but my daughter was, you know, in daycare. So I, again, I looked across the state. I was working with a number of schools. There's over 350 schools across New York State. So seeing awesome models and seeing the, you know, the world of innovation, I was thrown into it. But the the true spark that took off for me as a parent was during COVID. Uh, that was the year that I was on Zoom. Uh, my daughter couldn't do pre-K. And I was like, what is going on? Um, I've been in so many schools. I've known so many people, but I felt very helpless and alone. And I questioned a lot of the decisions I was making as a first-time parent. And that is really the vehicle that propelled me into creating a space and, and really working with folks who stand in solidarity of parents who feel isolated and alone. So you're in Rochester, right? Okay. What is happening in Rochester when it comes to public education? Because we've been hearing that there are some challenges. So what are those challenges? Uh, Rochester is a perfect storm. So when we talk about things pre-COVID, we had students who were, you know, two grade levels behind. So if we kick it into gear of the pandemic, you add an additional layer of uh, learning loss, we're looking at almost a four-year gap of where students should be right now. But uh, with the overturn of several superintendents, we've never had a, a, a district leader to stay for you know more than one four-year term. Hmm. Uh, in addition to that, we've had a number of schools that have gone into receivership. Uh, in addition to that, we add a, a layer for the state uh, monitor. So Dr. Jallo, who is now the um, overseer of both the academic and fiscal piece for the city school district, has really added an additional piece of, you know, questioning and then also uh, mistrust within the community for people to to really view the district as incompetent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the perfect storm. But then when I think about the layer of the community itself, we're talking about generations of folks who have been failed and push through this large system. So when I reference the young men who were struggling reading Seabiscuit Run books, a lot of their parents were in the same boat, of their grandparents in the same boat. It has just been this ever-going cycle of just pushing people through. It can't speak to all charter, I mean, not all public schools, but it's definitely the sentiment when we talk about the damage that's been done through the public school system in Rochester specifically. It indicates it within the poverty rates, the crime rates, and uh, employment rates. It all draws back to education. It does come back to education. And, um, you know, the community and what it's experiencing is not a during the COVID thing. As you indicated, this is something that has cycled, right, for, for generations. So what is it about today's parents that feels different? There does seem to be a new level of energy among parents to do something about this. You working with the National Parents Union? First of all, what is the National Parents Union, and then what's the what's their energy level like in Rochester? So the National Parents Union is a an organization that works with parents and parent advocates across the country. Uh, they're really just encompassing, elevating parent voice, 
uh, a lot to what I spoke to of just standing in solidarity of parents who feel alone and feel voiceless. Uh, they create a number of toolkits and trainings and just resources for folks to circulate within their school communities. Uh, I, I consider it like the, the big sister, big brother of uh, the parent community. They're really there just to support the work that people you know, get pushed back for. And then the presence in Rochester, uh, I'm the, the newest director, so they haven't had anyone on the ground for New York State, let alone Rochester. Uh, so it's been a privilege and an honor. I joined as the director in July. So mm -hmm. it's still fairly new. But uh, when we talk about parents kind of stepping into power and, and like this new energy, again, it comes, it's like good and bad from COVID. Mm -hmm. It comes from the aspect of during COVID that dynamic of schools when, you know, the, the traditional dynamic was give me your kid, I'll educate them, you know, give, give, I'll give you the report card. You come in for this meeting, show up with the uniform, do the field trip slip, you know, you're good. You, that's what parents have to do. When COVID hit, it was, Hey, can you log on to this? Can you get them set up in this meeting? Did you check this email? So for the first time, parents were in the position of not only being the superintendent, but the lunch lady, the social worker, you know, the gym teacher, everything all into one. That's never been heard before when we talk about education. So I think parents were, you know, surprised and maybe invigorated to want to do more or upset and enraged of, of what they assumed was taking place within school and it wasn't. Uh, so I think that is like the spark that really lit under parents across the country. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you are working with the parents of Rochester to help help them channel this energy into some productive action um, and that you have support from, from a national organization to help you do that. What do parents feel like they need the most? Like what kind of support do the parents you work with want? First and foremost, they they want understanding. So uh, coming from a place of, of working with schools and, and working with different systems, everyone's a parent and some entity. Parents want the same things that a lot of these systems want. So, you know, there shouldn't be a, a misguided dynamic between schools and teachers and parents. If you're a teacher, I'm assuming you want your students to succeed. That's the same conversation for parents. Parents want their kids to thrive in, in the environments that, that they choose. Um, you know, right now we are talking about, you know, the economy, we're talking about um, safety, we're talking about learning loss. So these are kind of the things that come top of mind, but every parent has a different dynamic of what they feel their household needs. Mm -hmm. But understanding is the first thing and, and for people first to thing. actually listen to what their concerns are. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay, so part of what you are navigating, and I heard this in your story that you told us about how you how you got to where you are. So do you think charter schools are part of the solution? And if they are, what do you wish people knew about charter schools? So I'm a charter parent. Uh, I will say that the National Parents Union uh, is in total support of all families. So, you know, traditional district, charter, um, homeschooling, treehouse schools, whatever you have it. Uh, all, the choice. As, all the choices. <laughs> all the choices. <laughs> um, but for me personally, I am a charter parent. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I've gone to, uh, my daughter's gone to a couple of charter schools. She's in first grade. So um, we're, we're still trying to figure out what environment works for her. Um, I think as far as 
what I see is uh, what parents need to know. I don't think that any parent should feel they need to be loyal to any system <laughs> that is, um, you know, that's failing your community, that's failing your child. So families need to understand we we only have loyalty and we should prioritize the needs of our children before we begin to prioritize systems. That goes for both traditional as well as charter. I think that charter schools have opened up a door and a couple of layers. So as a parent, there's a dynamic profile of, you know, single gender schools or um, STEM schools or, you know, project-based learning schools. So there's, you know, this huge portfolio of choices where you don't have to go to, you know, just the the standard school around the corner. In addition to that, um, for being just a charter advocate and for the work I've done through the Charter Schools Association, I see charter schools as a way to really uplift and support leaders of color. So um, really building out a pipeline of leaders of color, whether it's a principal or they're just a charter school founder, uh, creating networks and, you know, different buildings and building out your own cultures is probably the most powerful thing that uh, Black and brown folks can do within our community. Do you think your community knows about charter schools? No. <laughs> so I just I just made a comment on Facebook uh, because Newark, New Jersey is actually pivoting to a common app. So they, uh, you know, the, the the larger networks have decided to to go it alone and go it rogue and do a Newark common app. But I mentioned that Buffalo and Rochester have already done a common app. And um, I think even when we talk about those common apps, it's another layer of, of community engagement and, you know, you know, demystifying. So all of those charter myths that we hear all the time during, you know, board of education meetings or or whatnot, um, or even on TV now, you know, like, uh, I think that Rochester is in a place where there's so much dysfunction and there's a lot of distraction that it's hard for people to really take in, okay, what is a charter school and how does it function? Because Mm -hmm. it's just whiplash. Uh, But I I would say um, for Rochester and just about any other community that has those common apps, this is is a tool that is really supposed to make it easier for families to just take a snapshot of how uh, charters function. And, you know, if it's K through 12, if it's a single gender school, as well as just applying to any of them, you know, you can apply to all 14 at one time. Uh, so a really quick way, but at the same time, demystifying. So yeah, helping <laughs> getting, them understand questions. what their choices are, yeah. right? And knowing that people are going to make different choices based on their own family situation and needs. So, I mean, this is, yeah, this is what choice is about. Well, Lashara, I'm so glad that you are you know, driving the work um, with parents in New York. Congratulations on the position um, in that you started in July and for all the work that you're already doing with parents. I know that there's a lot of energy out there and that you're a wonderful person to help channel that and, and help organize those parents. So we look forward to working with you and to supporting the parents as they pursue these goals um, around their kids' education. Because as you said, education is the path forward. So um Really happy to talk to you today and uh, glad about glad to hear all the work you're doing. And I know that uh, we're going to keep talking. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And the National Parents Union is here for all families, all households. We stand in solidarity of elevating parent power. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hi, my name is Kyle Davis. I'm the Director of Public Affairs, and I'm speaking with Emily DiVertola, who's our Education Policy Analyst. How are you doing today, Emily? I'm good. Thanks, Kyle. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited to be able to talk with you about all the the happenings in New York State education policy. There seems to be a lot going on right now. Uh, The governor's executive budget proposal was filled with stuff that is of interest to you, I know. Uh, Do you want to go into some of those key provisions that were in that executive budget? Sure. Um, So in general, there has been a historic increase to school aid. Um, It is the highest that it has ever been in New York's history. Um, And that increase is coupled at a time when public school enrollment is falling and also student achievement um, has not shown any meaningful improvement either on New York's own state assessments or national assessments like the nation's report card, for example. Um, In addition to that, there's been some potentially exciting news for charter schools. There's been a proposed lift on the regional cap for New York City's charter schools. Um, and a freeing up of the zombie charter schools, which are schools that have been closed down for whatever reason, but we're still counting towards the cap. So this means potentially around 100 new charter schools would be available in New York City, which would be welcome news for the potential tens of thousands of kids on wait lists and you know, at least 60% of parents who answered that recent poll um, that were interested in having the charter school cap lifted. So that proposal's in there, not quite sure if it will see through the finish line, um, but I'll be watching closely. Absolutely. It's going to be very important for advocates of that proposal to uh, be speaking out and speaking in favor of it, uh, because there is a uh, uh, considerable opposition um, coming from certain segments of uh, the New York State Legislature. So parents who are involved in that um, should definitely be voicing their concerns. And speaking of parents who are voicing their concerns, Emily, we recently uh um, helped provide some support to parents who were trying to speak up about school choice in New York. Do you want to speak a little bit about um, what we were doing in terms of uh, the supporting those parents? Yeah. So we had a great school choice week here in Albany. Um, like many states around the country, we were at the Capitol supporting parents, um, telling their stories about how school choice has benefited their families and their students. Um, Part of that was to support one of our partners in the ad reform space who was curious what choice looked like in each of our elected officials' districts. So in other words, how many public schools and also how many charter schools, private schools, and even homeschooling households were in each elected official's district. So we were very curious about that too. And you might be a better person to speak about how you approached that process and answering that question. Yeah, absolutely. So we um, found some data on the New York State website that was GIS, so Geographic Information System data, that allows us to map out where different school options are across all New York State. So they had mapping data publicly available for charter schools, for traditional public schools, and also for private schools. So we were really able to figure out where all that lied, and we were able to uh, overlay that with legislative districts, which was very important for the parents as they wanted to better understand what the makeup and school makeup was of each legislative district um, that they were going to go and speak with. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is a lot of interesting information that came out of that. Um, And I have to give a lot of credit to our data manager, Rafi, 
So when I was in grad school, I learned I learned some about GIS mapping, but Rafi really took it to the next level and he was able to provide all that information and even break it down into Excel files so it would be easily accessible and we could uh, for, formulate it into easy to digest one pagers for those families to be able to take advantage of and to share with others. So that was a great opportunity. Yeah, all credit to both you and Rafi for that one. Such such useful data to have. And I remember when I was looking through just initially what you guys found, the homeschooling numbers, the tally was just going up and up. Could you speak a little bit to that um, and anything else that was particularly surprising in what you found? Yeah. So one thing that came up during uh, those parent meetings, so parents came back and they told us that legislators were absolutely shocked by the number of uh, homeschooling households that were in each of their districts. Um, they, they, the numbers were much higher than they anticipated. And one thing that I saw when looking at the data is it really didn't matter whether it was an urban district or a more rural district. Um, the homeschooling household numbers were in the thousands. And the way that we calculated that, because we don't know exactly where each homeschool household is, nor should we, um, if, if the homeschooling household was located within a school district that had overlap with the legislative district, we counted, counted it as a uh, part of their district. And we also made, made notice of that. Um, so a lot of these districts had well over 2000 homeschooling households uh, in the, in the, in their districts and that they really didn't know. I've actually heard of legislators getting invited to homeschool graduation ceremonies within recent years. And that's something they've been shocked over. And I think this is the trend that we're seeing is that more parents want more personalized education choices, right? Yeah, and I mean, these numbers speak for themselves. There are obviously many households and those households could have more than one student in them who have left the public school system. Um, and you know, in other states, those families might have access to at least a portion of some of their education dollars to be used towards homeschooling expenses or maybe private school tuition. But as you know, here in New York, um, that money flows entirely to the public school system, where at least in these cases, many of these families have chosen elsewhere. Um, so very telling information. Um, and I think it just shows parents are, are voting with their feet here in New York. So aside from the homeschooling numbers, what about private schools or even charter schools? Was there anything surprising there? Yeah, when I was looking at the trends in the data, one thing that emerged to me is it seems that richer districts tend to have less charter schools and tend to have more private schools. Uh, that's something that I really want to look into and confirm and make sure that that's accurate. But I think that's largely uh, because something that we already know. So those richer families are exercising school choice already with their own dollars uh, by sending their students to private school. Um, I think that that's why it's so important for school choice policies to be expanded so those lower income individuals can be able to send their children to uh, the schools of their choice and the schools that are going to best suit their needs. Uh, one interesting thing that I saw in the data as well is that, for instance, uh, Shelley Mayer and John Liu, Shelley Mayer is chair of the Senate Education Committee, John Liu is chair of the New York City Education Committee in the Senate. Uh, they actually both had zero charters in their district uh, based on that New York state data. And I think that that could be telling and that maybe that kind of showcases a little bit of what why their opinions are on charters. I'm unsure, um, but it is interesting nonetheless that they had zero charters in their district. Yeah, it is very telling that they would have, for example, such high numbers of homeschooling households, for example, but be offering zero charter schools as another choice for families who are obviously looking for one in their districts. 
And you know, part of that has to do with the charter law, which requires charter schools to open in high need areas. But yeah, I think a big part of it is something that you alluded to, which is that you know, there are many families that can afford a traditional version of school choice, which is living in a district that has great public schools, or maybe they can afford private school tuition. And the truth is that many families in New York can't say that and don't have those options. And that's why school choice is so important. Absolutely. And one thing that we have on our website that I want everyone to feel free to, to look at or to utilize is we have a tool and we'll link to it in the show notes um, that goes into the details of what each legislative each legislative district and the traditional charter and private schools that are operating in each legislative district. So you can have a better sense, whether you're a legislator or just an informed citizen of what the educational options are in your local area. Um, and I think that's going to be a great tool for people to utilize. And I would like to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode of Messages of Necessity. And I look forward to speaking with you all next time. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.